Hello, it's Mike Richards here from the Treasury Recruitment Company. I hope you're enjoying the Treasury Career Corner. If you are, great news. Perhaps you give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcast content. This means that even more Treasury professionals can benefit from finding out or by finding out about how Treasurers have achieved their career goals. The link to rate our show will list at the bottom of our show notes. And please remember as well, the show itself is as much about you as it is about us. If there are specific questions you want us to ask or there's feedback you want to give, please drop me an email. My direct email is mike at treasuryrecruitment.com, inventably enough. But anyway, that's enough from me. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to this week's Treasury Career Corner podcast, where I interview Treasury professionals about their Treasury careers. I talk to them about how they got started in Treasury, where they are now, and where they see both themselves and the Treasury profession going next. In this week's show, I'm delighted to be joined by Ian Chisholm, Vice President of Corporate Finance at BHP. BHP are one of the world's leading resources companies, and they're headquartered in Melbourne, Australia, and offices over here in the UK. They extract and process minerals, oil and gas, with more than 62,000 employees and contractors, mainly in uh, Australia and the Americas, but actually a global reach as a company. Their products are sold worldwide, so they've got a number of offices across the world. They operate under dual-listed company structure with two parent companies, and they, but they operate as if they're a single economic entity, which we refer to as BHP, as we will do throughout this. Ian is currently the VP, as I say, of corporate finance there, responsible for financial strategy, dividends, funding at the corporate level, but he'll explain that a bit more. But prior to moving to BHP, and I've known Ian for many years of my career, Ian worked at Royal Dutch Shell for 26 years, predominantly throughout Treasury, with roles including managing their London Treasury Centre, the pension fund, Treasury, the, or the gas and power business. As well as being a qualified management accountant, he's a FCT, and he's currently the president of the ACT, so I'll, I'll, I'll salute to that, El Presidente. But Ian, take me back, if, if we may, um, you did a geology degree, loving breaking up the rocks and things like that at Cambridge, and then you decided to move to Shell, was that right, or what, how did it all start back in the beginning? Back in the day, um, thanks Mike. Um, so... After the geology degree, I actually went and worked as a geologist for three months in Australia in an iron ore mine. And actually, ironically, it was a Rio Tinto iron ore mine, ironically, given my, my current employer. But I did, a, I did work as a geologist, and, but I decided at the end of that three months that I didn't want to be a geologist for the rest of my life. I wanted to work in the business. Uh, side of things rather than the technical side of things. So I came back to the UK and applied to the oil companies and to Rio and and a few others. And Shell offered me a job in their finance uh, graduate training scheme. So that was the start of the the Shell career. So I I did my first kind of uh, graduate rotations uh, and a few different jobs there and got my uh, SEMA qualification as I was working. And then I think as many people do, I fell into Treasury. It just was one of the next jobs on the, on the Shell graduate rotation. Right. Uh, and I did a Treasury job in Aberdeen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked as, uh, I suppose, the, as a Treasury advisor in the upstream oil and gas company in Aberdeen. And so looking at their foreign exchange exposure, their cash flow forecasting, and, and some of their leasing as well. So that was my, my first experience 
of Treasury back in the day. And then with the, you know, the role from there, you sort of said, right, I want Treasury. How did it come about? Did you just sort of say, right, I've done my rotation. Can I be in Treasury, please? Or what happened? Uh, a little bit like that. So basically, after that Aberdeen role for a couple of years, I, I realized I, I really liked Treasury. It was something that, you know, one of the best roles that I did during my rotation. Um, and a job came up in what was then called Group Central Funds, Central Treasury in London. And I applied for that job and I was fortunate enough to get it. And really, I suppose that was the start of me specializing my career within the Treasury field. Because in that job in London, I got to invest cash and do foreign exchange and really understand the front office in great detail. I did my first set of corporate treasury exams. And then I was extremely lucky to be at that point of my career to be at the right place at the right time, I think, in the sense that what was happening at the end of the 90s, and it wasn't unique to Shell, was that there was a big change in treasury, which was the centralization of treasury. I think historically, certainly when I joined Shell in 1989, treasury had been very decentralized. Each operating company within the treasury world had its own treasurer. They Mm -hmm. talked to their local markets. They had all their local bank relationships. They did all their FX and their borrowing and their investing locally. And they talked to the center once a year and, and sent dividends up or got funding from the center. So it was a very decentralized model. And what happened, I suppose, over the following 10 years is that, you know, markets opened up, communications improved, technology improved, and people realized that actually that the decentralized model could be very inefficient. And so you'd be borrowing in Deutsche Shell and lending in Shell Francaise. So mm-hmm. that didn't make any sense, right? Um, and particularly also with the advent of the euro, the, the ability to actually offset exposures and get economies of scale was just enhanced a lot more. So what happened in Shell at the end of the 90s was that I was the Treasury team, which was centralizing the, well, I was the first manager of the European Treasury Center in Shell. And what that was, was providing foreign exchange and uh, borrowing and lending services to all of the operating companies in Europe in Shell. So we had to go out and persuade our the treasurers in all those local companies to actually deal with the centre and not deal with their local banks, which is a very interesting experience. And then you had other centres. You did Singapore and, and one of the states in Houston. Is that right? And so you sort of passed the ball around the, the three. That's right. So once we'd kind of made a success of the European Treasury Centre, then uh, we opened up the Singapore Treasury Centre to do the Asian markets. And of course, they are a little bit more difficult because not all of them are open to international cross-border flows. We then opened our Houston Treasury Center. uh, And finally, there was one in Rio, which did uh, obviously the South American um, operating companies. So Shell ended up with, with, I suppose, a a four-center model uh, in the middle of the the thousands, the year 2005 or so by then. And you were doing sort of operations, and then you became the development manager. And, you know, what what was the sort of difference, the evolution of your role? Because obviously, you know, someone could say, well, you're 26 years, you weren't doing the same job. This progression, obviously, with a company the size of Shell, it's in some ways, you know, speaking to Mark, who's been, who's at Johnson Controls, he's been 14 years there. You know, each of the bits, the company's been different. Now, Shell, not a different company, but obviously evolution. How did it sort of flow for you, if you like, your career there? 
yes, so you're right. I mean, uh, 26 years in Shell, but um, if I tell you that I had 12 different jobs in that time, uh, <laughs> job that shows that, surely, uh, you know, <laughs> you, you, <laughs> job it shows the, that actually Shell has a, I suppose, a, a strategy of, of moving people around within the company to get yeah. a wide range of experiences. And it's such a big company, you know, the biggest company in Europe and one of the biggest in the world, uh, that it has got a lot of different experiences that you can go and get. And even within a specialized function such as Treasury, you can get a, a whole wide range of different experiences. So as you say, that I started off in Aberdeen, I then moved down to London to do the central Treasury role, and then that was the, the Treasury Center Manager for Europe, and then the Development Manager for the Singapore and Houston centers. So that was kind of rolling out the model and, and making sure that they were having standard processes and doing things in the same way. Mm. I then went on to, to work in the M&A team, providing all the kind of financial support to M&A transactions uh, for gas and power deals in the, in the Far East. And from that, I then became treasurer of the gas and power business uh, and worked in The Hague for three years. I then came back to London, worked in treasury operations again for a couple of years before moving on to the pension fund for four years. And then finally in Shell, my job was the, running the, um, the debt, being uh, VP of financial markets there and doing the all balance sheet funding for Shell there. And we, you know, without... You know, we could, we could, you know, go on for ages about each of the roles and dive yes. into them, but, you know, not a lot about it. But was it easy working at Shell? And what I mean by that, in, in as far as some companies you're having to say, well, please deal with us, please deal with this. I know that when I've spoken to some of the Shell cash management guys, they said we had to add an extra zero to, you know, our, to our spreadsheet sometimes because we were just such massive flows how did you find sort of Shell as an organization and how did it evolve through that time? Obviously, Shell's always been a, a massive company, you know, throughout that whole period. And it's, it's, it's had a over 100 year history. Um, you know, all these big companies can't, don't stand still. They evolve all the time. And whether it's moving from a, a decentralized model to a centralized model, as I've, as I've described, or going into new bits of business and trying to see whether they will work or divestments that happen all the time. There's acquisitions that happen all the time. So there's a lot of change, even in a big company. And of course, trying to work out what the right strategy is for the future. And right now, there's a, there's a big challenge about the energy energy transition, uh, which Shell are dealing with. But I, when I went into M&A in Shell in 2001, I was doing gas and power projects, as well as renewables projects. I was involved in bidding for a wind farm in uh, in Holland. And so that was what that was, I think, Shell's first kind of ambitions into renewables at, at the beginning of the century. Uh, we then Shell went the, when they're a bit quiet on renewables for a bit and then has come back significantly into wind and solar in the last few years. So mm. these things go, you know, come and go. And there's always things in a big company such as Shell to keep the interest level up. And you managed throughout that time different teams remotely and and actually directly. Yeah. What would you say your, your leadership style is? And, and, you know, was Shell keen to sort of develop that, would you say? Yeah, Shell, uh, I have to say, a very process-driven company in a lot of ways, but actually there's a lot of good process as well as, right. as sometimes lots of good process. But I think they uh, have concentrated quite a lot on leadership development and they had a, a number of different leadership programs, which I went on and, uh, you know, certainly improved my leadership skills over the time that I was there. And 
I, I think it's it, my, my approach to leadership is that it, one of the things that, that Shell talks about when it talks about leadership is about building shared vision, uh, an overarching phrase for, for just trying to say, making sure that we're all talking from the same hymn sheet, right? So you, you as the leader are there to articulate the strategy, tell people where they're going, making sure that you've got the right resources in place and that the tasks are allocated out correctly within the team and developing and empowering that team to actually go and deliver against that strategy. So I'm very much about trying to get, you know, the right people in place, encouraging them to pick up new opportunities and skills and building the team together so you've got people who are interchangeable and, and can all, you know, move forward and, and de- deliver the strategy. And you, you mentioned there when you first joined the group and things, you know, perhaps the the tools weren't in place to to be able to run on a necessarily global basis. How did you see Treasury as well as Shell as a, a great company evolved throughout your time there? Because you must have seen it go from you know, very manual to more systems or what were the biggest things that you saw happen within the group? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Mike. And, you know, we used to write out paper deal tickets and we'd fax things to the bank and, you know, all that stuff seems incredibly ancient, <laughs> ancient technology yeah. uh, these days. So the, the technology changes has been absolutely massive. And, and the other thing that happened at the, the end of the 90s was, the, the, I suppose, the rise of the foreign exchange platforms and Shell was actually an investor in Curranex at one point um, uh, and then got out and and let the banks get on with it but was trying to I guess seed the market to to try and get that moving forward I think we could see that that you know that that the the change in technology the rise of the internet allowed much better communication and more efficient communication uh, and, just, and just better use of technology and access to markets if you could actually get the right tools in place. And that's what all those FX platforms have done. Uh, and now, of course, FX is moving on to algorithmic execution, which is you know, a, a, away from any of, of the telephone calling up and getting a bid for you know, cable or whatever. It, it, it's, it's now all done pretty much online via Bloomberg or whatever it is. Um, so, you know, things have changed very, very significantly in a lot of the, the, the treasury execution areas. I think the other big change has been on treasury systems. Uh, and again, I was involved in the first implementation of quantum in, in treasury and in, in shell um, at the end of the 90s. And that you know, has gone through many upgrades and system implementations since then. But the you know, the improvement that we've got in systems and the data that we've got and the ability to parse that data and understand what's going on, real-time cash forecasting, all of those things have just massively changed how Treasury operates. The, the, the fundamentals of Treasury is still the same. It's still about managing the group's cash. Mm. It's still about managing the group's financial exposures. But the tools that you use to do that have, have changed out of all recognition almost. And in terms of the people using those tools, the staff around you and you know the team, when you're looking at candidates, what made, made them stand out for you? Because I know that sometimes one of the issues when – we recruited for companies such as Shell was the size of the group, you know, and actually convincing candidates that they wouldn't feel like a tiny cog in a massive machine and everything else. 
and obviously making it much more about, well, actually what you do does make a difference. But in terms of when you were recruiting as, as part of the team there, or as the team, you know, the head of the team, what was it you were looking for? And, you know, what would you do to attract them? So I think there's a few points there, Mike. You're absolutely right that that Shell can, uh, a company the size of Shell, can can seem quite hard to get your hands around it, and and that is the that's the the other side of the coin to the fact that there are lots of different opportunities in a company such as Shell. Is that it's so big that when you get in, you realise that actually your bit of treasury is only a small bit of the of of the bigger treasury. And so it can feel quite narrow sometimes, but I think you've got to see both sides of that coin and say, well, okay, I, if I do my bit of this bigger machine really well, then generally I think the company's got a very good way of, of recognizing talent. And there are a huge number of opportunities that, that you can then go off in different directions. And whether you want to be a specialist in the front office or whether you want to have a wide range of, of treasury experiences such as I had, or if you want to actually get out of treasury and go into broader finance roles, there are those kind of opportunities for you as well. So I think we did sell Shell in terms of development uh, for people, both kind of in role and then next roles for them. Um, and that was a, 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 a key attractor for, for some people. Mm. In terms of what I specifically was looking for, one of the things that I always talk about or, or try to identify in interview is, is curiosity. Uh, and by that, what I mean is is not just kind of cognitive ability or what you know analytical abilities and saying, well, I can run the spreadsheets and you know churn the model and whatever. But actually, the, the big question that you always ask yourself in Treasury is, is what does this mean? What mm. do the numbers mean for us? What's the effect of it? it? What is the effect of it? What, what, if markets move, what will happen to us? Mm. And, you know, if this happens, what, what does that look like for the company? Or, you know, conversely, if the company decides to go and do this, what does that do to Treasury? And it's really important that as an individual in treasury, you're in a specialist function and you're, you need to be the expert in that function and understand how to do an FX deal, or how to run cash management or how to manage pension risk or whatever. But you need to understand the business drivers. And why are you bothering um, to do it? Yeah. And why are you bothering to do it? We, we don't, we, you know, trade doesn't exist in, in kind of an isolation. It exists to service the business. And you need to understand what the business drivers are, what the business risks are, the business exposures are, and how the business generates cash and what might change that. And of course, you know, I worked in, in natural resources and commodity businesses for, for my working career. Mm. So, you know, that's, that's a, a highly volatile cash flow stream that, that the companies I worked in are delivering. Um, and that, has its, that has, has its own challenges. And those challenges are different whether you're in natural resources or whether you're in retail or whether you're in technology companies or financial institutions or whatever. And you need to understand how those work. And how would you assess that curiosity? You've got a candidate in front of you. And I've asked this a couple of times. People have said, oh, you know, assess for attitude and stuff like that. And I was talking to someone the other day. They, they talked about how they would how people would react when things weren't going so right. You know, when things were failing, I spoke to Greg Kozer of Vanquist and he said it was about resilience and everything else. But he said, when things, when the chips were down, what was your default reaction? What did you do? But that was his way. And he, you know, had various ways of measuring it. When you were looking at that sort of curiosity, how, how many 
cobbles are in the streets of New York or one of those, or what sort of question? <laughs> what, what was your assessment or what's, what's the way that you sort of try to understand it from people? Yeah, I think so. I think actually Shell and BHP have got very similar approaches to structured interviewing processes. Um, so yes, you talk about the CV and try to understand people's experiences and of course you pick up a lot of detail from that. You might ask a couple of technical questions just to understand how people's thinking is, what, whether, how much do they actually understand about the world around them, hmm. about what's happening in Brexit or in US interest rates or you know credit ratings or that kind of thing. But they generally... Um, there's, a, there's a bunch of behavioral questions that we ask in BHP, but also in, in Shell used to do the same, which is to say, you know, if you have, do you have an example you could give me of a time where you did this, where, where you had to uh, give feedback to a difficult team member, for instance, or you had to do a new project and present that to the, the management team, or you, you know, you had to make a change to a process, a business process, and so you are, you know, you're asking about not necessarily. Um, what people know, but how they actually operate and how they understand things. And you're testing, I suppose, that curiosity through, well, how did you take on board external feedback or how did you look at best practice? How did you actually understand? How do you as an individual, for instance, make sure that you're up to date? What mm. what sources do you use? You know, how do you, do you, what do you read actually on a day-to-day -day basis that keeps, makes sure that you're informed about what's happening in the, in the business as well as in the, in the, economy yeah i'm talking about their predisposition to take a certain action and one of the things actually we i recently did some speaking over in austria a lot of the guys were saying oh you know well we come i said you come to the conference to learn stuff but how do you learn when you're not here when you're not here sitting here and and they Absolutely. were like you know but the key thing we talked about a lot of it was linkedin you know we said one of the great sources of information there's constant you know there's a lot of guff that's on there but there's also a lot of valuable stuff you know as well as reading the you know the financial news and everything else there's some good interaction and if you sign up to the right streams and they were like oh yeah and actually a lot of them were suddenly seeing it as much more as a business tool rather than a recruitment tool which some of them definitely you know this was over in austria and they were a bit concerned about it sort of thing and they i think they sort of became a bit more linkedin friendly as it were after that session because it could help them sort of thing uh, because the difficulty with all the social media now is how to sort the, the wheat from the chaff, right? So there's a vast amount of information that's out there. And how do you actually, you know, not just <laughs> end up wasting your time yes. on Donald Donald Trump's tweets or, or whatever <laughs> it is, right? Uh, and, and actually, you know, understand what's relevant to you uh, and, and to your company. And that's yeah. a critical skill. Yeah. But that's also one of the reasons, you know, it's as if I set it up, and I didn't, I promise. Um, but it was actually, the, that's why we created this, the Treasury Career Corner, because a lot of people were asking uh, Craig, my US director, and I, well, how did that treasurer get to there? How did they make that? You know, and a lot of the junior guys and, and mid-level as well, and, and, you know, and a lot of people were just interested in people's career paths, which is why we came up with this idea of actually creating it. So that's where it came from. So... You know, that was a good bit. So after that number of years with very successful years, and you, you that's it, What you could have stayed there, surely. Temptation to remain, but then you decided to join BHP. 
How did that come about? So, I mean, it wouldn't surprise you, Mike, and, and you, know, you know this Martin conversation as well, that, that I, I suppose I kind of looked at leaving Shell many times over that 26 years. That's not, a, you know, everybody needs to be out there, you know, assessing their value in the market and what the alternatives are to the internal move that, that's perhaps on offer. So, you know, it wasn't that, that suddenly I decided after 26 years I'm, I'm going to go, but it was, I suppose, a combination of factors of what the alternatives were inside Shell and then the opportunity that came up in BHP. And what came up in BHP was that BHP moved its treasury from Melbourne to London. And so there was the opportunity to uh, really shape a new team, to set the strategy for that new team. And, you know, Vandita had a very clear vision, uh, Vandita Group Treasurer of BHP, a very clear vision of what she thought world-class treasury was. Uh, and I was very happy to join that team and develop a world-class corporate finance function. And really, I thought it gave me the opportunity to more management exposure, uh, doing some of the technical treasury pieces that I had done previously in terms of uh, debt issuance, but also very much getting more involved in, in business advisory uh, in um, MBHP. So it's been, it's been a, a great move. Of course, you know, a, a business which is similar to Shell in a lot of ways in natural resources, but obviously some in new commodities in terms of iron ore and copper and coal, getting to know a new network and understand a, a new team and how a, a, a company like BHP works. And, you know, one of the standout moments we, we discussed over coffee was recently, you, you know, had a 5.2 billion share buyback, which recently completed very successfully as well. So pretty chunky stuff. Yeah. And so, in fact, I joined BHP in May 2016, which was really after quite a, a difficult period for commodity-based companies. So a big downturn in prices in, in 2015, early 16. And a lot of what we were doing in the early days was actually fixing the balance sheet, paying down debt, trying to make sure that the company was uh, had the right policies in place, dividend policies and balance sheet policies in place to support the future. And of course, Commodity cycles turned, as they always do, and prices have come up in 1718, and uh, we've now started to generate uh, a lot of cash flows. And at the same time, what happened was that BHP had invested in the oil shale business in the States a few years ago. That investment had not been as successful as they had hoped. The decision was made in August 17 that that business was non-core. In August 18, uh, we announced that we had made a, the sale of that business to BP for just over $10 billion. And what we also announced in, in August 18 was that all of that money would be returned to shareholders because actually what we'd done over the previous two years was to fix the balance sheet. We didn't need to use those divestment proceeds to do any more uh, balance sheet reconstruction, that money could all go back to shareholders. So we have taken that, it was 10.4 billion in total with the net proceeds. We've paid 5.2 billion out in a share buyback uh, in December, and we'll pay another 5.2 billion out in a special dividend in January. So that, as you can imagine, has been uh, really occupying my time significantly over the last six months, really. Oh, oh. Um, that dual-listed structure, which you mentioned right at the start, uh, so we're listed in, in Sydney and in London, and a small listing in Johannesburg, meant that we had a, a whole bunch of alternatives in terms of how we would distribute those proceeds across the shareholder base. Uh, 
And there is the opportunity in Australia to do what's called a, a discounted share buyback. Um, so you actually can buy back the shares at a discount to market price. Um, but for shareholders who've got a, a low uh, tax base, then they, on an after-tax basis, get a, an improved return. So that generally is the best way for us to return money to shareholders. And so that whole 5.2 billion was done in this off-market discounted buyback we did in the Australian listing. So it's a, a very complicated transaction, taking over kind of three months, getting tax authorities to sign off on that, uh, you know, financial advisors, um, the whole process about the tender took a lot of time and a lot of internal stakeholders to get uh, set up. But actually, you know, the satisfaction you get from one of those big transactions going through smoothly is fantastic. It just means yeah. that you've assessed all of the different moving parts up front. You've got everybody aligned. You're taking the right decisions. You're getting them done in the right place. And as I say, it just, that's just a, a brilliant feeling. And, and that's and that's what you get in Treasury. And that's why I love Treasury. Yeah. It's really one of those, you know, you see the results of your own handiwork. It's not about reporting on what others have done, as in some other finance jobs. You actually are doing those transactions where it's debt issuance or buybacks, equity issuance or buybacks or whatever, FX transactions, you get to see the, 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 the fruits of your labor. And your commitment back to Treasury itself as well, you've been you know, an FCT, so fellow, fellow of the Association of Corporate Treasurers. Uh, you're currently the president. I am saluting now, obviously. You know, uh, what I was going to ask you know, why have you given back? The, obviously, you studied the ACT many years ago, but why is that important to you? I suppose I studied the ACT, uh, the AMCT in 98 and then MCT exams in 2000. And I, and I found them not only interesting, but actually extremely useful for my job. And it really taught me the value of the uh, technical qualifications that the ACT did. And to me, as I said previously, you know, Treasury is a very technical, specialist technical area of finance, which requires proper professional training and qualifications. And it's extremely important, I think, that we've got people who work in Treasury who've got those qualifications. So I've always been a very strong supporter of people doing those ACT exams. I've also, over the time, gone and done guest lectures at a couple of universities um, on Treasury, and I'm, I say, a really strong supporter of Treasury education as a whole. So when the opportunity came up uh, a few years ago to become part of the ACT Council, I thought, well, this is a, a, a you know, something for me to give something back to mm. the profession to make sure that it's moving in the right direction. You become part of Council, and then uh, if you're fortunate enough to be asked, then you then become part of that presidential process, which has led to me becoming president from the 1st of May 2018. So you, it's a presidential term of a year. And really what that means is that I am chairman of the council now, so running the council meetings, which is a fantastic experience in itself, but giving, I suppose, non-executive oversight to the executive team at the ACT who are the ones who run the qualifications and the conferences mm. and the, the training and all of the membership uh, association pieces that they do and the Treasurer magazine and, and everything else uh, and trying to make sure that we're all moving in the right direction. And what is that direction do you say for the future? Because obviously you've got these different you know, offerings, if that's the right way, because it's been highly successful with educating the profession and coming up with that and you know, certainly a number of the 
earlier shows I did, you know, I was saying to people, you know, what do you think of the ACT, the AFP, com, you know, qualification in the US? And there are other ones coming up throughout Europe as well. And, you know, we're very pro-education, pro, you know, pro whichever the association, to be honest, we don't side with any of them. But, you know, then you've got all the other things, you know, conferencing and things like that. You've got these members. What are you wanting the, it to be? Well, we've updated the, the mission of the ACT over the last couple of years, um, and it now states that we are there to embed the highest standards of professionalism and integrity in the Treasury world and act as its leading advocate. And I think that kind of covers the, the whole waterfront there. It, it is about qualifications, absolutely. Those are completely core to what we we offer. But we also, for those who don't want to do the formal qualifications, where we provide training. We also provide, a, obviously, a massive amount of networking through our regional networks, our global conferences, you know, the UK conference uh, annually in May, and then we've got a conference in the Middle East, we've got a conference in uh, Hong Kong, maybe one in Europe this year as well. So there's a lot of networking opportunities that we provide to our members as well. And we also have a policy and technical team who uh, ad- advocate any on, on any regulations or changes or things that are coming up in, in the treasury market with the with the, the, the Bank of England or the other regulators. So LIBOR reform has been a big piece for us over the last few years. The fair and effective re- review of markets has been a, a big area that the ACT has got involved with. So I think that all of that stuff is core, but it all comes back to a membership service hmm. in the end. What do the members want? And what we're hearing from members is that you know that they they like the qualifications, they like the training, they like the conferences, and that they want to continue to to have that support to allow them because oftentimes. As a treasurer, you've got a small team in a, in, a, in a small company and you haven't got lots of people to bounce ideas off and you're wanting to get that additional help you can get from a professional network. And that's what we really want to try and help and provide is to make sure that our members, wherever they're working, whether it's in corporates or financial services or consultancies or anything else, that they have got access to that you know, treasury network and professionalism and understanding of best practice and cutting-edge technology. So, Ian, with, with yourself, where do you see potentially the future of the Treasury profession? Obviously, you're in a privileged position as the ACT president, but, you know, maybe as a treasurer, but, you know, using that or bringing that together with all your knowledge, what do you see coming down the line, looking at your future, your future crystal ball, as it were? Yeah, thanks, Mike. I think there's a lot of uncertainty in the whole world economy at the moment, but let's leave that to one side. That kind of comes and goes. We as treasurers are are here to manage financial risks within that context. Mm. We've talked about systems a little bit in in this podcast. The, the, The treasurers of the future will have more access to more data, right? And we need to be better at data analytics as a whole. And I think this is something that we'll be looking for in people who are coming into treasury teams to be able to manage that massive data in a, a coherent and logical way, and the, a way that actually will help decision-making rather than just drowning in that sea of data. And, and what will also happen, I think, is that a lot of those treasury jobs, the, the kind of day-to-day treasury jobs, the standard treasury jobs, may not exist really in the corporate head offices anymore. Hmm. A lot of those 
may get offshored or taken to low cost locations, whether you know within the country or in, around the world, depending on where those companies are operating. And it means that as treasurers, you've got to be able to manage global teams and global interfaces and the data coming out of those teams and still be able to manage the, all of your exposures and, and your cash and your borrowing at the same time. Uh, and so it's going to be a much more perhaps fragmented uh, in terms of your teams and not people you know in the room who you can talk to and bounce ideas off but actually you'll have a much richer data set to actually do that with so i think there's different challenges that we're all going to have actually making sure that the treasury in the future is actually going to work in a in a coherent way people listen to this podcast and they'll look at your linkedin profile and that's what things that spoke to Ian before and he said if you do want to connect with Ian we'll put his LinkedIn profile just in the show notes so you can connect to Ian if you want to have him as part of your network and things but as you look through that you'll see he's got a detailed LinkedIn profile which is great which shows you some of the moves he's made but if someone is looking and says actually that's the sort of career path I'd like what advice would you perhaps give them to sort of wrap up today's show I'm not sure that my career will exist again, okay. if you see what I mean. Yeah. Uh, in, the sen- in the sense that I'm not sure that people will stay at a company for 26 years. But as I mentioned before, it's not to say that I was doing the same job for 26 years. I was doing a lot of different jobs. And I think people will do a lot of different jobs. And in fact, you know, work in perhaps different careers over their, their lifetimes or their working lifetimes going forward. Mm. For me, though, and, and you'd expect me to say this perhaps, is that, you know, getting your your building blocks, your qualifications, your skills and your experience. So, for instance, your accounting qualifications or your professional treasury qualifications, I think is a, a critical element to that progression through different roles as you go forward, because that gives you that underpinning of good professional knowledge uh, in this technical area. And as I say, it may well be that you move company to company. It may be that you stay in one company for a number of years and then move on. The, the other element that we talked about before, curiosity, curiosity about what's going on in your company and how you can really grab new experiences. So in addition to being the, the professional expert, you need to have your eyes open to what those new experiences are in your company and seeing where those opportunities are because what Shell was good at was saying, actually, it's time that you now moved on to something different, even though we know you're now you're good at what you're doing, yeah. but you need testing yourself and keep getting new experiences. And I was actually tapped on the shoulder for that job managing the UK pension fund in, in Shell. And I thought, pension fund, really? I mean, I was 40 <laughs> or something, and I thought, you know, it, it's a job you go and do when What's you're wrong? 55 or something. Yeah. Um, but it really was the most interesting job I've had in a lot of different ways. We're not least of which was because I started doing it in September 2008, so right in the middle of the of the crash. And when you're managing financial assets as well as liabilities uh, in the middle of a financial crash, that that was an eye opener, and uh, it really did push me in a lot of different ways and got me to think about financial risk in a lot of different ways. And, and if I, and I could easily have said no to that pension fund job and said, well, actually, no, pension's not really for me. But actually, it was, a, it was a hugely beneficial experience and led me to do a lot of what I've done since then in, in better ways. 
Mm, I think that's that's hugely reflective of a number of the pieces of advice that we've got, certainly in recent weeks, when I'm saying to people, what would you do? And I think it's just being not only curiosity, but being open to those ideas. Open. Yeah, and that's one of the things we got with Mark, you know, in one of the previous ones from Johnson Controls. He was saying, just, you know, don't turn stuff down. You know, just be open to the idea that, you know, the first reaction might be, oh, I'm not so sure, but actually get over that and say, well, where do we go next? And it certainly sounds like you did exactly that. So it's... How can you make the most of that role yeah. that you get? Might not, you might think it's not the ideal role to start with, but you've got to, you know, there's always bits of jobs that you like more than others, and you can steer that usually and make the most of any job that you get. As I said, so we'll put Ian's details for his LinkedIn profile. You connect that way. Just want to say thank you, Ian. It's been another fantastic podcast today. I hope you guys are enjoying these. Great advice from an experienced treasury professional and the president of the ACT. So feel free to, you know, look at those guys if you're thinking about maybe furthering your qualifications and everything else. You know, thank you very much, Ian, for your time today. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. And you, Sam. And we'll see you soon. Thanks, Mike. Thanks very much.